The Volcker Rule is here, the economy is improving, I swear it's true, and MasterCard has a much bigger dividend. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. And in the background here, David, we have lots of yellow balloons. They look good. The yellow balloons are here because we're happy because Glassdoor has named The Motley Fool the number one mid-sized company to work for in the entire country. David, what is your favorite reason for working here? Got to go with the free food. You got to go with the free food. free food. Healthy food, too. I thought you were going to say body. getting to work with great colleagues. That, too. 11.30 every day. That's my favorite part. You like the free food. I get it. All right, on to the headlines. First, oh, I guess I should, before we go to the headlines, I should say, sorry we were not here yesterday. It, there was a giant snowstorm here in D.C. Snowmageddon. And it shut down, shut down everything. I'm still getting used to the idea that a little bit of snow does a lot of uh, damage here in D.C. And, and if, we're, if we're ever not on your iTunes or your Stitcher, just check our Twitter handle, at TMF Financials. We promise we will tell you if we're not up there for any Or just freak out. Yeah, freak out, too. That Either works, one. too. I, I was freaking out. Okay, now on to the headlines. Wall Street Journal, B of A's Moynihan, Volcker Rule won't change things dramatically. So here we go. Volcker Rule is here, David. Nearly 900 pages of Volcker Rule. Uh, what we're really talking about here is a ban on proprietary trading, right? That's, that's banks taking their own money and trading with that to try to get gains for themselves. Um, but then it's also about ownership of private equity funds and hedge funds. And then the, the whole trick here has been trying to carve out an exception for market making. And the difference between proprietary trading and market making, market making is when these banks are trading on behalf of their clients, uh, but there is some risk-taking aspect to that, so it's been tricky trying to work that out. Um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the setting of the rules, in the great launch of the rule, one of the quotes that I liked came from the Fed's Daniel Tarullo, who said, the fundamental challenge is to distinguish between proprietary trading on the one hand and either market-making or hedging on the other. The difficulty in doing so adheres to the fact that a specific trade may either be permissible or impermissible, depending on the context and circumstances within which the trade is made, which sounds very soft and squishy, because it is. Right. Got to look at the context. But yeah, Moynihan, he's right. He's right about the company that he's talking about, Bank of America. They're not really, they're impacted by this, but not as much as a Goldman Sachs, a Morgan Stanley. Bank of America, their biggest, part, their biggest business is their consumer banking business. There. Yes, they have an investment bank. Yes, they have global markets. But they're really a consumer bank first, a business bank first. It impacts their business, but not materially. Even if the Volcker wasn't in place, these wouldn't be huge profit drivers for Bank of America anyway. So, like he, like he said, not a big deal. And my favorite quote from Moynihan in this article was, have a it's awesome. Maybe one of the best quotes of the year, maybe. He okay. says, the average business person we talk to is getting incrementally more frisky. I love that. <laughs> that is pretty great. People are getting frisky. He's talking about people who are more optimistic about the economy, I guess, frisky. With, with comments like that, you're going to get sold on Moynihan yet one of these yes, days. very nice. Second headline of the day from the Wall Street Journal also. Wells Fargo chief sees healing U.S. economy. That's John Stumpf. We just talked about Brian Moynihan talking about a healing economy. He's not the only one. John Stumpf says credit environment continues to get better. And a lot of people were looking at banks like Wells Fargo and Bank of America who have been releasing reserves and they've been pointing to, well, that's not going to last forever. Stump saying that might last longer than some people are expecting. And that's a benefit in the short term, but 
the, the broader takeaway from this article was that Stump says, I think 2014 is going to be a good year, maybe not a, a, a gangbuster year for the economy, but things are slowly getting better, which is pretty common with what we've been hearing across the board. So here's one thing he said that jumped out at me. He said, as I'm talking with our customers, especially our small businesses and middle market customers, I'm starting to hear a little bit more about expanding business. So a big part of the issue here has been loan demand. So if the, there's more demand for the loans, then the banks can start to put their, their money to work uh, in high-quality loans that are going to get paid back, which is what we want at the end of the day. Loan to deposits at Wells Fargo, uh, which is it, just like it sounds. It's the, the percentage of loans as a percentage of deposits, or it's loans as a percentage of deposits, sorry. That's below 80%. In good times, that'll be up near 100%. This is below 80% right now. Why does that make a difference? Well, on Wells Fargo's balance sheet right now, loans are bringing in 4.4%, a rate of 4.4%. Securities are bringing in 3.6%. And the repo lending that Wells Fargo is doing, and mm-hmm. Wells Fargo is not doing an insignificant amount of repo lending, 0.31%. So to the extent that Wells Fargo starts putting more capital to work in loans, that can help heal the broken net interest margin that's been challenging banks all over the place. Right, so maybe moving capital out of U.S. Treasuries, agency mortgage-backed securities into commercial loans that are helping the economy and helping everyone. Exactly. All right. Final headline of the day, we're going to the AP. Actually, no, we're going to the Fool, apparently. Good job, David. Uh, We've got an article here from Patrick Morris. MasterCard is giving dividend lovers an early Christmas present. (laughs) We've got uh, the dividend... <clears throat> boosted 83% at MasterCard. We've got a 10-for-1 split, and we've got $3.5 billion to go towards buybacks. David, can you, uh, can you not buy MasterCard after hearing this? It's tempting. Haven't seen a 10-for-1 split in a while, have we? Those, those aren't as common as they used to be. But you have to buy after a 10-for-1 split, oh, right? Yeah, it's because guaranteed. that makes it way better. You get 10 before you're only getting one. It's a very good deal. Um, it's tempting, and it's hard to argue with their capital plan here. I'd love to see them giving back the dividends. The, the share buybacks, you'd be a little, little hesitant. Shares are at all-time high, I think, maybe saying, is this the best time to buy back shares? But it's hard to argue with them because they've done it in the past at all-time highs, and they've been successful. So the business is doing well. There's justification for these actions. So if you're holding it today, I think you're very happy. But at today's prices, I'm still not sure it's a, it's a glaring buy. But I think it... It's a, I think it could be a good buy, but I, I'm not rushing out to buy it today on this, on this news. Uh, just closing out, a quick comment on, this, on the split. I was joking with you about that. Ten for one split for people who, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with, with the way a split works. This is really just an accounting thing. Uh, instead of getting one share at, at, I think, nearly $800 is what it was at, you're now going to have 10 shares at $80. Um, so really, this doesn't change anything. But the the thinking is that it, it allows people to buy a few shares or it, it, it meets the screens of certain mutual funds in mm-hmm. some cases that don't buy shares that are really, really high priced. But that's not really that meaningful. I'm much more uh, focused here on the dividend boost and the buybacks. Yeah. Cool. Focus for today? We've got the Volcker Rule, of course. Mm-hmm. Volcker Rule coming into effect. Like I said, nearly 900 pages of regulatory rulemaking here. You read them all last night, didn't you? I read, I read very few of them. <laughs> Good. I read them right before bed, and, and it helped me sleep. This is primarily aimed, again, as I said before, proprietary trading, hedge fund ownership, private equity ownership, 
Uh, and then the, the trick was regulating the proprietary trading without uh, hurting market making, which is a legitimate co- client-driven mm-hmm. business. Uh, David, how much do you think the introduction of Volcker Oil is going to change what's going on out there? I haven't read the full 900 pages either, so I'm not an expert on the Volcker Rule. But so neither from, of us are doing our job, <laughs> From the, what you're saying. From what, I've, from what I've consumed so far, it doesn't seem like too much is going to change. Will there be more compliance costs? Yes. That's probably good for some consultants out there, some compliance departments. Maybe they'll keep their jobs longer. I don't know. So it's good for them, so it's bad for the, the banks in terms of costs associated with that. But the actual business, I don't see it changing that much. We talked about market making in the opening, how you have to justify that there's a client need for that. I think most of, the, most of market making that's going on is probably a client need. I, li- I know people like to think that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are, are doing all this shady stuff and none of it's client-driven. I don't think that's very true. I think not much will change in terms of that. In terms of the portfolio hedging, so a portfolio hedge, that's what the London Whale claimed to be a portfolio hedge, but it was really kind of a bet uh, when we pulled back the curtain there a little bit. That will change a little bit. Banks now have to show that there's a, a strong correlation with that hedge, that why are they doing it? They have to show regulators. Here's why. Here are the numbers. So maybe that impacts, but JP Morgan shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. So Overall, I think it's fine. I don't think it's going to impact banks that much. I don't think it's going to hurt shareholders that much. And maybe it saves us from a London Whale situation, maybe. So I'm not too concerned. You know, my thing is is that if you – the idea is that we're trying to avoid what happened during the financial crisis. If you look back to the financial crisis, the investment banks like Lehman Brothers, who would be top of mind, weren't banks at the time. So this wouldn't apply to them. Uh, so so, so you're, you're heading off that part. And then I went back and I looked at Bank of America in 2008. So Bank of America, 2008, earnings fell 70% from 2007 to 2008 between the two. And in the fourth quarter of 2008, Bank of America reported a $1.8 billion loss. And, of course, the government was injecting money into Bank of America and a lot of other banks at the time <clears throat> to try to save them because of these losses, because of all of this. Okay, now where, where, does that stem, where did that stem from? Provision for credit losses in the fourth quarter alone for Bank of America, $8.5 billion. Fourth quarter of 2008, $8.5 billion. That was up from $3.3 billion in the fourth quarter of 2007. You see a $5 billion jump in provisions over that year. For all of 2008, $27 billion, almost $27 billion in provisions for credit losses. So these are, these are loans. These are loans that now they, they didn't think that they'd be able to, they'd be able to collect on. Provisions, $27 billion. That's up from $8.4 billion in 2007. Now, on the capital market side of the business, there were losses there, too. Uh, about $5 billion. So that's significant, but when we compare that to the $27 billion in credit provisions, it pales in comparison. And, and of that $5 billion, not all of that is going to be, would, would be uh, characterized as proprietary right. under the vocal rule. So... My, my thing is here is that I don't have a problem with the idea that, that banks that, are, that have federally insured deposits shouldn't be taking proprietary bets. Mm-hmm. I, I'm okay with that. The problem is is that when you're layering on 900 pages of regulation and layers of, of costs on banks that are now going to have to police all of this, I just don't, I don't know if the trade-off is worth it. Um, and, and there are a lot of people that, that think not only is the Volcker Oil a good idea, but it should have gone even further. I don't know. And, and, and if going further would have made it simpler, 
maybe that maybe there's there's a good argument there. But at the, at the end of the day, it just seems like a lot of extra bureaucracy for, for trying to fix something that wasn't the linchpin problem that people think it was in the first place. I think that's fair. And the one last main point of the Volcker Rule that I'll, that I'll mention is investing in, in hedge funds and private equity funds. Banks were doing oh, it. Again, it, it's not very material. I think even Goldman Sachs in their filing said investments in private equity and hedge funds were not material to our revenues. So – that's not a huge deal. You don't need to invest in hedge funds and private equity to make good returns as a bank. Do you see BB&T, U.S. Bancorp investing in tons of hedge funds? No. They've been successful banks, an M&T bank. They don't do that stuff. You don't need to do that to be a good bank in the long run. So, again, not a huge deal. And, and, and on, on that, too, uh, Bear Stearns ran into a lot of problems from its hedge funds. But, again, uh, as, as far as I know, may, I could be mistaken here, but Bear Stearns would not have been covered under the Vol- Volcker Rule. Uh, Bear Stearns of 2008. So anyway, okay, moving on to the mailbag. Uh, we have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. We love to get questions, comments, anything else. Usually, we're addressing a question here. Today, we've got a comment from Mark. Uh, on, he writes, after hearing your Monday show, you asked the weirdest place someone fell asleep. I just thought I would share my strangest place. On my first journey to Iraq with the Army, terrified, I fell dead asleep on the C-17 Air Force plane on our flight from Kuwait into Iraq. We were packed in there like sardines when overseas planes use combat landings and a combat takeoff, which is an aggressive climber descent immediately upon takeoff or landing. I don't know how I slept through that part, especially with all of my gear on in such a crazy situation. That is impressive. I, Man. <laughs> when, when, when I fly commercially, I, I'm able to fall asleep on a commercial air, airplane, no problem. In that situation, not a chance. I can't even fall asleep on a commercial airplane. I'm that pretty sounds... sure I would have been more likely to throw up on my shoes. What is it, what's an aggressive landing? That just sounds like something <laughs> I don't want to be a part of at all. I'd be like... Or an aggressive climb. Like, a passive landing is fine <laughs> for me. No need to get aggressive here. We'll get there. We'll get to Iraq. I don't know. There's been a couple commercial flights that I've been on with some pretty aggressive landings. But yeah, no, no need for questions. You can send your comments, anything. We'll, if they're entertaining, we'll read them. So yeah. Thanks, Mark. All right. Uh, moving on to our game for today, we have rankings. So in rankings, we visit a subsector of the financial industry, and uh, we rank our favorite companies, our favorite stocks within that subsector. Okay. Today, we're looking at asset management. David, what do you got for us? Well, you mentioned that we rank our favorite stocks in this space. So up front, I'm not an expert in asset managers. This isn't a space that I follow intimately close with my other investments. So instead of giving you my five favorite stocks right now, I'm giving you a a five in terms of they're on my radar, in terms of what I want to look into. So that's kind of where I sit with these. And here are my five. I'll read them off real quick. Number one, Blackstone. Number two, Leg Mason. Number three, BlackRock. Number four, T. Rowe Price, number five, Invesco. My number one, Blackstone. I think you're a shareholder in this. so Indeed. That probably makes you happy. <laughs> the, the reason I'm interested is how can you not be interested in Blackstone? And we should note, in these asset managers, you're usually buying kind of the performance fees, the advisory fees that the underlying funds are generating. So they're getting a, kind of a percentage of those funds. They're, in my mind, the the best minds in the business, in the private equity game. They span over everything, buying up houses in the U.S. They have operations across the world. Great leaders there. Whether, whether you think they're ethical all the time or not, I know there was a recently a segment on The Daily Show. 
to, to me, it showed how, how smart these guys are, and that's one that they pass a lot of they pass the earnings through to shareholders. So you get a dividend there. They're invested in very interesting things. So that's why Black or Blackstone is uh, my number one. What do you say? I say I, I agree. I think you're I think you're brilliant in that, you. in that number one ranking. So here here's. Let, let me put it this way. I didn't necessarily rank mine in, in the, the normal one to five ranking order. The thing is, is that within the asset management space, I am less interested in sort of the traditional asset managers with uh, actively managed, with, with the majority of the business in actively managed mutual funds. I, I frankly think that that's, that's a business that is um, getting challenged. And I think it's going to continue to be challenged. And so what I like from the more traditional side, more traditional side, not traditional, but BlackRock. So BlackRock is a giant in the mm-hmm. asset management space, $4.1 trillion. World's trillion biggest, dollars, right? Yeah, in assets under management. And the reason it has so much is that a lot of these assets are uh, passively managed. So BlackRock is behind the iShares. Yep. So a lot of the ETFs. And I think that this is, so, so there are two reasons for this. Number one, uh, I think investors are getting wise and continuing to get wiser about the impact of fees on their investment returns. And with the ETFs, with a lot of the passively managed stuff, you're getting rock bottom fees. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to be the business behind that. And that's a good thing to be an investor realizing that. Uh, and also, I think that, that investors are seeing ETFs as a way to get exposure to different industries. I'm, I'm mixed on, on that, jumping around to different industries, but it's been good business for BlackRock. I really like BlackRock. I think that that's a business that will continue to do well. And I had then, them on my list, too, if I can jump in. Yeah, go my, ahead. My one point of BlackRock, like I said, they're the world's biggest asset manager. Only 5% of revenue is coming from Asia right now. Just a point. There you go. And, and uh, actually, another point on BlackRock, too, is that one of the ways that uh, investment managers are typically compared and valued is a, a valuation as a percentage of assets under management. You're going to see that be much lower with BlackRock right. than everybody else because the consideration is what are the fees that they're collecting on those assets under management. It's much lower for BlackRock than everybody else because they're passively managed fees. So what I've done beyond that is I've grouped four together, uh, four companies that I really like, and that's KKR, Blackstone, Carlyle, and Apollo. They have something in common. They do have something in common. These are all... Uh, th- these are four of the largest, smartest, best private equity, private equity slash hedge fund managers in the entire world. And I think what's, what we're beginning to see is kind of a, a separation in the field. So um, assets, particularly pension, uh, pension assets, um, endowment assets, that sort of thing, a lot of that, more of that is being moved towards hedge funds and private equity. And private equity has... Uh, distinct advantages over pub- public market assets, um, even even if the the returns aren't always uh, don't always beat the public market. And, and then I think a lot of a lot of the rest of it is going towards like the Black Rocks of the world. So in the middle here, I think that's where a lot of the traditional asset managers are caught. So I like the four of those. Uh, if I had if I was forced to rank them, I think I would probably go KKR, Blackstone, uh, Carlisle, Apollo. Right. Maybe I'd flip-flop KKR and Blackstone since I do own Blackstone. The, the one note in terms of why T. Rowe Price got on my list there, my number four, is consistently raising the dividend. And you look at the management team there, CEO and the CIO, who's also the chairman of the company, have a combined 60 years at the company. I think they know their way around. So that's why T. Rowe Price jumps on my radar. There you go. Good management. Hard to go wrong with that. Let's finish off the day 
on the Twitter sphere. All right. David, what's our first tweet? First tweet is from Shane Parrish. He's at Farnham Street. Understand that just as it is complicated to make things simple, it is simple to make things complicated. Were you trying to imply the Volcker rule here? Is that what you were doing? <laughs> it, it crossed my mind when I saw, when I saw this tweet. Uh, it, you know, I, the idea behind the Volcker rule was a simple one. And, and if I remember correctly, uh, Paul Volcker, uh, the, the former uh, Fed chairman, his original proposal, I think, was on one page. I'm pretty sure it was on one page, and now we're at 900 pages. Um, I don't know that I'd go as far as to say that it was a simple process to make this this complicated, but uh, I love uh, I love the stuff that Shane comes up with over at uh, Farnham Street, and uh, definitely brought Volker Roll to my mind when I saw right. that. Uh, second t- second tweet of the day. This comes from American Banker uh, at America that at A M E R Banker is the the Twitter address. FDIC approves sharp drop in annual budget. Sounds like trouble, David. It's not trouble. It's because less banks are <laughs> failing, which is good for the FDIC. I tried to, I tried to catch you there. I, want, I wanted fine. to see if you actually read it. Reducing employees, they don't need as much, uh, they don't need as large of a budget anymore. And just wanted to throw a, a little bit of a misnomer out there about the FDIC. Please do. It has government backing. Government is kind of the ultimate backstop there. But banks pay into the FDIC. The FDIC is bank-funded for the most part. We don't pay the bank's FDIC charges, but banks, for their larger clients, their commercial clients, their corporate clients, they charge them FDIC fees there. So banks are the ones paying into this. Yes, the taxpayer is the ultimate backstop if things go really bad, but just a misnomer there that the banks are getting this for completely free. Crushing misunderstanding. Well, I guess they're passing it on to their customers, but passing customers to them, it's not completely free. Crushing misunderstandings. I love it. All right, David, final, final tweet. Final tweet is from Glassdoor. As we mentioned in the intro, congrats, The Motley Fool. You're number one among Glassdoor's 50 best medium companies to work for in 2014. Hashtag employee's choice. We are number one. How does it feel? Nice. feel feels good. feels really When's good. When's the last time you won something? Oh, the race that you did recently. Yeah. <laughs> you were number one. I, w- I was for, for that day, and I had a donut to celebrate. So yes, two donuts. We, we are we are number one, and we're also hiring interns. If you have a grandson out there, a nephew, it's in college, out of college, you can go to culture. Or you, or or the listener, or you, or yeah. you as a listener. Yeah, I don't know how many of our listeners are in college, but maybe um, you can go to culture. If you're in college and listening to this, email us wtmifool.com to prove David wrong. Okay, thank you. You can go to culture.fool.com. That's where all of our jobs uh, are on there. We have, I think we have. Hiring 10 summer interns, that's up there. They can apply. We also have other jobs. If you're just a fan of The Fool, want to come work here, that's great too. We also have a three-day program in January for female college students. All expenses paid. I think that's still open for people to apply to. So again, if you're a female in college. you, playing the HR part. All all travel expenses paid. I mean, you can't get anything better than that. Three-day seminar, investing for for females, that's great. If only I was a female in college. So I'll say it again, culture.fool.com. Check it out. We're number one. Boom, number one. Well, on that note, we'll close it out for today. Uh, as always, you can email us, wtmiatfool.com. We are on Twitter, at TMF Financials. For David Hansen, I'm Matt Copenheffer, and we will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.